1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 1, the Bible says, Do not rebuke an elder man or an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church be not burdened so it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. And that's a powerful verse right there. That you may be getting away with sin right now, but the sin that is hidden will eventually be manifest, will, will eventually be revealed. And the good works that you do now, you may think that nobody's noticing, that nobody sees this, that nobody knows what you truly do, that nobody knows your heart, but your good works will one day be revealed, just as the sin of the secret sinners will one day be revealed. That's, that's a powerful verse right there. In fact, we could take First Timothy and break it up into about three or four weeks, um, but we're going to go through today. And we will get out by lunchtime, I promise you. First, now it depends on when you define lunchtime, but we will get out by lunchtime. First Timothy was written to instruct Timothy on how to keep the Ephesian church on track by keeping them centered on the gospel. If you haven't been able to follow us online for the past four weeks, that's what we've been talking about. That Timothy has been left behind in Ephesus. Paul has moved on to 
to minister and to evangelize another area. And he's left Timothy with the charge to keep the Ephesian church on track, to give the Ephesian church a solid foundation by which they will become a, a God-honoring church. And there are great things in store for the Ephesian church. They become a mighty church for the Lord. They actually subdue the city of Ephesus and create such a culture change that the people who make money off of the idolatry will ultimately be afraid that they're going to go out of business. I mean, that church had an impact on this community. When the Apostle Paul is opening up this letter to the church at Ephesus, he makes a key statement in chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues or flows from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the aim of our charge. That's what we want to achieve. That's what we want to see happen, is that we have love that flows from a pure heart, a love that flows from a heart that doesn't have hidden agendas, self-serving motivations, that there's no secret reason for all this, all right? That it's just, we love people. We love each other. We love those who are without. That's what we're after, love that flows from a pure heart and a good conscience, this good conscience is one that is at peace with God because our sins have been paid for. I can stand with confidence in the Lord because I know that he has paid for my sins on the cross and he rose again the third day in order to give me eternal life and that hope of eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean I go without sin and that doesn't mean I stand proudly. God, I am your special child here. I mean, there, there is that remorse over sin. There is repentance. There is conviction. But I, I have a good conscience. I know that at the end of the day, the Lord is going to receive me into his presence. And a sincere faith. This is a faith that truly believes in the gospel, has a real trust in the Lord. Not a faith that is surface level. Not a faith that is self-serving. Not a faith that is meant to put up a good image. But a faith that truly believes and truly trusts in the Lord. That no matter what happens, we know that everything is going to be okay. And there's a lot to that. And we'll discuss that this morning. But a sincere faith, a true faith, a faith that is for real. I'm going to tell you something. The world knows the difference. Yes. The world sees the difference between those who truly believe and those who it's all a show. And sadly, those who it's all a show far outnumber those who have the true faith. And how do you know where you're at? You have to get with God on that. And how do we move people from that surface level faith to the true faith, it's all in the teaching and the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the word. Amen. All of this is possible only when your life has been transformed by the gospel. Amen. So you cannot aspire to love. Love is cultivated within you as your faith in the gospel grows. And we talk about the gospel. What are we talking about with the gospel? I keep coming back to this because you ask somebody what the gospel is, very few people can tell you. Okay? The gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, how that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he, raised, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. What does that got to do with love? It shows God's love. It was all motivated by God's love. God is love. Amen. Out of his love toward us, Jesus Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures foretold it, he fulfilled it. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God, the wrath that I deserve, the wrath that you deserve, the wrath we all deserve. He took that wrath upon himself. He suffered God's anger. He suffered God's wrath. He suffered God's punishment. And he suffered a death that we should have suffered. You know, crucifixion in the Roman Empire was reserved for the worst criminals. And not necessarily the worst criminals, but those who were, who were traitors, who were betrayers. Jesus Christ took the punishment of a traitor on our behalf. And isn't that what sin is, really? Isn't sin a betrayal against God? Isn't sin a rebellion against God? Isn't that, it's not, he behaved badly. No, it's a, it's a betrayal and a rebellion against God. Why did Adam and Eve eat the apple in the first place? Or maybe it was a fig. No, Jesus liked figs. Couldn't have been one of those. Why did they eat the forbidden fruit? Why did they eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Satan told them they would be as gods, that they could be equal with God, that they could decide for themselves, they could experience whatever they wanted to experience and decide for themselves what's good and evil. They don't have to listen to God. That's why they ate the fruit. It was a rebellion. What's wrong with eating a fruit? Nothing unless you're doing it to rebel against God. And God owed them punishment for that. He told them they would die, and they ate. But Jesus Christ died the death. He was buried, and he rose again in accordance to the Scriptures. The Scriptures actually tell us that the Christ, the Old Testament Scriptures tell us that the Christ would resurrect. You'd have to draw that. You'd have to draw that conclusion, because if he's going to rule forever, yet he dies for our sins, how's that going to happen? He has to rise again. You say, well, people in the Old Testament couldn't have figured that out. Abraham figured it out. Abraham was called... To take his son Isaac, through whom God promised all these good things would come, he was called to take Isaac up onto the mountain and to sacrifice him. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham worked it out in his mind that if God's going to keep his promises through this son, and I'm being called to sacrifice him, that God's going to raise him back up. If the Christ from the Old Testament that was foretold in the Old Testament was to die for the sins of the world, yet rule his kingdom forever, there has to be a resurrection. He rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The way the scriptures foretold, it would happen. And because of that resurrection, we have hope knowing that one day we will be resurrected. Yes, we will close our eyes in death. Yes, we will be separated from this world by death. Our souls will separate itself from our body. And the Bible tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you are a believer. One day we will die, but we have that blessed hope of knowing that our souls, we will be present with the Lord after that moment. And the day is coming when we will all be, as believers, physically resurrected with new glorified bodies and will be reunited with each other. We have that hope. Why do we have that hope? Because Jesus Christ rose again from the grave. That's why we have that hope. We're going to see Frank again, people. Yes. Y'all see the picture of him in the obituary? Like, man, what a, what a, what a young, vibrant, healthy, intelligent executive was in that picture. That's, that's Frank today. When we see Frank, he's going to have all his hair. Amen. If we have hair in heaven. I don't know what the glorified bodies look like. And he's going to make fun of my accounting skills. He's going to do that. The Lord did not have to do any of this for us. There was no reason for the Lord to redeem us. There was no reason 
for him to redeem us, and there's no reason for him to promise that we would live again, that we would be reunited again. Why did he do that? Because he loves us. Love was the motivating factor. And we were unworthy of this. And because he loved us and gave us this, and we were unworthy of this, that's grace. That's the definition of grace. But the Lord loved us. When you repent of your sins, you believe the gospel, you trust the Lord for salvation. The Bible says the Spirit seals himself to your spirit and bears witness that you are a child of God. And thus being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you have the capability of love. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us, that's why the Apostle Paul tells us that the aim of our charge is love. Mm -hmm. That flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Much of 1 Timothy is about what life looks like when you live the gospel-centered life. That love motivates us to be good for one another and good to one another in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it motivates us to pray for our political leaders and for all people to come to repentance and to know the truth. It tells us that love should be a fundamental characteristic of our church leaders in chapter 3. And in chapters 4 and 5, we learn that love defines and the gospel defines how we should treat each other. And on that note, let's look at this morning in chapter 5. I know you're like, man, that was just the introduction. The points are smaller, okay? Three things I want us to look at this morning. One, the gospel shapes our relationships with each other and how we interact with each other. Two, the gospel impacts our benevolence. And three, the gospel impacts our support of church leaders. Now, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about ministerial finances this morning, but I didn't do that because I'm asking for a raise because I'm not asking for a raise. It just came up in the scripture, so we have to talk about it, okay? <laughs> the whole counsel of God. But all of this, remember all of this, it comes from that fundamental concept that the aim of our charge is love, agape love, that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So first, the gospel shapes how we interact with each other. It shapes our relationships with each other. Verses 1 and 2 say, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. I want us to take a look at that word rebuke. Rebuke, it comes from the Greek word epiplesso. I, I can't relate that to anything you would, you know. You, we, we find these Greek words and they're like, it sounds like this English word. And that's what this English, no, I, I don't have anything like that. Epiplesso, it means to strike upon, to beat upon, to chastise with words, to chide or to upbraid. This is not loving correction. This is not me giving you advice. This is not me telling you how this can possibly affect you. You're making a bad decision right now, and it'll have this destructive effect. That's not what this is. This is me telling you that you're a sorry individual. This is me telling you that you're just awful. You stink. You know, this, this, is, me, this, is, a, this is something that happens out of anger. This is not loving encouragement. It's an angry outburst. It's an angry outburst that's insulting. It's degrading. It's trash talk. It's an attitude. That the older man, as we're, as we're told not to rebuke an older man or an elder, that the older man is an idiot. He's stupid. He's inherently wrong. His generation messed everything up. Then I have to make sure that he knows that he's wrong. Somebody has to say it. Just saying. He's wrong. I have the answers. My generation's going to fix it. And he needs to shut up and let me lead. That's what it means to rebuke. That's what it means to rebuke. This attitude and behavior is ungodly, and it goes against Scripture. 
And the reason you don't rebuke an older man is not because he's older. So if you're, if, if, if you're an old man, you're like, yeah, young people, listen to me and put up with me. Now, you're not supposed to do that either because we're supposed to be encouraging the older man, but the older man's supposed to be encouraging the younger man. This is not about age. This is not about rank. You don't have to accept the older man's wrongness because he's older and wiser. This verse does not prohibit correction. It prohibits an ungodly attitude. That ungodly attitude shows that you've drifted from the gospel. If I feel contempt toward you and that I must express my contempt toward you, that is an attitude that is not in the gospel. That shows that my heart has drifted away from the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, rebuke not an older man. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to encourage the older man as you would a father. And I'm going to tell you, my kids encourage me as a father. They don't rebuke me. Sometimes they laugh and make fun of me. But they don't rebuke me. And that's what, I mean, kids do that with parents. But like, sometimes I'll be talking to Rachel. Sometimes I'll be talking to Josh. I'll say, you know what, I'm thinking about doing this. And they'll say, Dad, you tried that one time. How did that work out for you? <laughs> Dad, you did that one time before. I mean, okay, I'll give you an example. This past week I was talking to Josh, and I'm like, you know, Josh, i kind of been thinking about maybe going back into radio. And Josh goes, Dad, you weren't happy in radio. Why would you go back someplace where you know you weren't happy? I'm like, yeah, that's a good point, Josh. Did Josh rebuke me? Did he, did he chide with me? No. Did he talk trash to me? No. Now, sometimes he does when we're talking about musical or, or something like that. But, but no, what did he do? He encouraged me, right? And that's how those interactions should take place. We are to encourage older men as you would a father, younger men as brothers. So I'm not supposed to encourage people who are younger than me. Oh, you little child, I'm going to... No. Brothers, brethren, older women as mothers... Would you talk to your mama like that? I mean, and some of you, and some of you may feel like you have reason to talk to your mama like that. But, I, you know, but you shouldn't talk to your mama like that. We encourage older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And notice that the, the goal here is encouraging, correcting in a loving and encouraging way. The Bible would call it exhortation. When we are gospel-centered, we operate out of love, not frustration, not anger, not a feeling of superiority over, but we operate out of love. It affects our relationships in a good way. It affects the way we interact with each other. And when we've got conflict, instead of making sure the other person knows how wrong they were and that they owe you big time, we're demonstrating how your actions affected me. And let's, let's do this moving forward. When someone has committed a sin and that sin has had a destructive impact on their life, well, you shouldn't have been doing that. I mean, I mean, how many of y'all like that out of your doctor? You know, the doctor comes in and, and he's like, well, you got diabetes. Like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. He goes, well, it's all that McDonald's you've been eating. No, you don't want to hear that. You want to hear what, what can we do moving forward? Do I have to be on medications? What's my diet got to look like? How much do I have to exercise? Can I eat McNuggets every now and then? I mean, you know, you, you want, and so which doctor do you want to visit? Right? It affects the way we interact with each other. And sometimes we have to have those uncomfortable conversations. But if you have love, that love flowing from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, and that uncomfortable conversation is going to be more about loving, encouraging, and correcting than it will be about putting somebody in their place.
Because that's how the world behaves. And that's why the world can't stand itself right now. We're different here. Love affects our benevolence. In verses 3 through 4, the Bible says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The Bible says to honor widows who are truly widows, those who are truly destitute, those who truly don't have options. Make sure their needs are met. Make sure they're not destitute. Love and encourage them. But do not take the place of their family. Do not step in where their children should step in. Do not step in where their relatives should step in. Why not? Well, you know, church budget. Well, the Bible does speak to our church being overburdened. But... What are you doing when you step in the way? When you step in and you take over the care of this widow and you, get, and, and, you, and you take the place of her children, what are you doing? You're failing to teach her children. You're te- failing to che- teach her children what they need to do. Scripture says to let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. What we should be doing in a situation where you have a widow who has a family who is capable of taking care of her is teaching the family how to take care of her. To empower them to do so. To have them learn to show godliness. You see, part of love is helping others to learn and to grow. Empowering them in the gospel. Enabling sinfulness and enabling apathy. Enabling selfishness. That's not love. Sometimes love involves coming alongside someone and helping them through situations. The Bible says, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. So there is a learning curve here. And we can come alongside them and help them learn to support their widowed relative during this. And we can offer support. But we are not to step in the way to where the family does not feel welcome to or that they're needed to support their loved one. That's having the opposite of the intended effect. So honor and take care of widows who are truly widows, but do not take the place of her family. And there's a lesson in all this, that if you are centered on the gospel and the love is flowing you'll have a heart toward your own family and you'll care for them. The scripture says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if we have a family that doesn't want to provide for the widow, we have a problem. We have a family of unbelievers. We have a family that has denied the faith. If we have a man over here that his wife goes and works two jobs and he stays home and plays Madden all day, Nothing wrong with Madden, okay, but if that's all you do and you're not supporting your family, then you have denied the faith and it's worse than an infidel. There was a man I knew via internet. He claimed to be called of God to be a missionary to a town out in the west. I'm not going to name the town, but it was out west. And he felt called to be a full-time pastor, a full-time missionary. And so he didn't get a job. He didn't seek support to the American Baptist Association because he didn't believe in associational support. He didn't believe in going out and raising support from sister churches because he should just live by faith. You know what happened? He didn't have a job. He didn't have income. They're living in a house in a, in a place that gets up to 120 degrees during the summertime. They don't have electricity, which means they don't have, they don't have air conditioning. Um, I don't know if they had running water or not, but they didn't have hot water because they didn't pay that utility. Is this, a God, is, this, is this a man that is showing a godly example to that community? Is this a man who is having a gospel impact to that community? Is this a man who loves his family? I, I submit to you he's not. No. He's not providing for his own. 
And in so doing, he's actually denied the faith and is worse than an infidel in the King James language. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Um, our, our version, uh, the ESV says worse than an unbeliever. He's worse, but an infidel, that sounds really bad. He's worse than an infidel. Gospel-centered people support their families. Gospel-centered, dare I say, gospel-centered men support their families. It is ultimately, Scripture teaches, it is ultimately the man's responsibility to make sure that his family is provided for and they have what they need. This does not mean that women cannot work. This does not mean that women cannot contribute, that women cannot support, and many women do, and many women do a fine job of it. The, the issue is not what can a woman do or what can a woman not do. The issue is whose responsibility is it to make sure the family is taken care of. And I submit to you that Scripture teaches, and I don't think it's just because of the culture of the day, because Proverbs 31 talks about the godly woman who considers a field and buys it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this woman's doing, I mean, the woman in Proverbs 31 is doing business. She's not stuck in the kitchen. She's doing business. She's doing some stuff. But whose responsibility is it to make sure the family is taken care of? The responsibility falls on the husband. God is not happy when we don't take care of our families. Our benevolence, honoring the widows and widows indeed, by the way, extends beyond financial and material support. It involves spiritual support as well. And that's where the teaching of the family to come alongside and take care of her. This, this is where helping her pray through these situations, that's where that all comes into play. And finally, the gospel affects how we support our church leaders. Verses 17 and 18 say, Let the elders who rule, and the Greek word here is presbyteros, and I thought I'd go back up to the top of the passage and find the word for older man, and fi- I hope it's going to be a different Greek word, so I can tell you if different words mean different things, they were both presbyteros. But the word presbytero can simply mean someone who is older, or it can mean a leader in the church. I, I studied that out in the, in the Bible dictionaries. Um, I think given the context of verse 1, when, he's talking, when he goes into treating how you treat the younger men, the older women, the younger women, I think older man fits in that context. But down here, when we talk about let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, we're talking about church leaders here. We're talking about pastors. We're talking about teachers. Especially those, in verse 17, who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. If the gospel has transformed you, if it has impacted you, then you will see the teaching and the preaching of the gospel as precious. I'm going to tell you, when I'm scrolling through Facebook, and every church has a Facebook Live now except for us because my phone doesn't work. So we record and we upload a podcast, and I try to do Facebook Lives and videos throughout the week. But as I'm scrolling through, I'm seeing the content being put out there. It really strikes me when you have a pastor that is committing himself to the preaching of the gospel, and you can tell that. You can tell when it's gospel-centered. When I hear it on the radio, scrolling through, and there's this preacher preaching, it's, oh, well, this is not a prosperity message. He's preaching redemption. If the gospel has impacted you, if it has transformed you, you'll see the preaching and the teaching of the gospel as precious. And if you see that as precious, you will love and value those who teach it. The preaching and the teaching of the gospel is something that is valuable, and it is worthy of financial support. The word honor 
be worthy of double honor. That means that's from a Greek word "tme." That's value by which a price is set. The value of anything is determined by the price you're willing to pay for it. This is a business and an economics concept. That the, the value of something, whether I think it's that valuable or not, if someone who is not under duress is willing to sell it for that price and someone who is not being coerced is willing to buy it for that price, that's the value of this particular item. I, I look at the prices that cars and houses are going for today, I'm saying it's not worth that much. But you have willing sellers and willing buyers, so I guess they are. So I'm poor again. That's okay. God is still with me. But the value by which a price is set, how much do we value the teaching and the preaching of the gospel? I was sitting in a meeting full of preachers, and they were complaining about, they weren't complaining about the wages. They were actually boasting about the low wages. Like, we ought to be willing to do this for free. And, you know, church, and preachers work this off. We ought to be willing to preach the gospel without ever being compensated. And he's right. If you've been called to preach the gospel, the finances will be irrelevant. You'll preach the gospel where God has called you to go. It's not about the money. But at some point we have to ask, us, ask ourselves, do we really value the gospel? Do we really value the teaching and the preaching of the gospel? Do we really value the ministry of the church? Do we really value having someone pray over us and help us through those difficult situations in life? Do we really value that? And if we do, how much? If we do, how much? I'm not giving y'all a referendum or, or a rant on how I feel. I'm blessed. We're blessed. We're okay. I'm not preaching this for my benefit. Don't read too much into this. I'm preaching this for the next pastor's benefit. I'm preaching this to cultivate, and I don't really have to do it because y'all have a heart of love. You have an attitude of love. Y'all have demonstrated this as a church over and over again. But I want to keep that cultivated, and that's why we're having this conversation. Scripture teaches that we financially support church leaders who teach and preach the gospel. Do we value that? That's the question. If we're gospel-centered, it'll affect how much we value that. So finally, looking through 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we tied this back into chapter 1, verse 5, which we used to tie it back into the gospel. Because if you separate these passages from the gospel, you get a legalistic religion really quickly. Yeah. So looking at all this, how are we interacting with each other? How are we treating each other? Are we treating each other in a way that demonstrates gospel-centered lives? Or are we indifferent? Remember, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us. Father, we thank you for this time to come together to study your word. Father, to grow in your grace and to grow in faith and to grow in our understanding of your word. Father, we pray that you be of those who could not be here today due to illness or other issues. Father, we pray for those who are still struggling. We pray your healing and blessing on them. And we pray for those who mourn. We pray your divine comfort upon them. We ask you to restore our congregation, to bring us back together, Father, and we pray that you would get us on mission spreading this gospel throughout the world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.